Dear God, I just thank you for each person here. You have something for them. You have a challenge. You have an encouragement. Uh, you have a conviction. Um, you just, Lord, you, you have something for each one. I pray that each of us will grab hold of it. Lord, I pray that today we will truly grasp the incredible hope that you offer us. That whatever we face, even death itself, the ultimate enemy, that you offer us hope. And we are grateful for that, for that confident expectation as we go through life. Lord, I just ask that your spirit uh, would do his work among us today. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Now, this morning, uh, and if you're an outline person, there is an outline in the bulletin, if that's your learning style. It's also, if you're joining us by the internet, it's on the Facebook page, and you can take a look at that. It does have discussion questions, if you want to talk about this later with your family or somebody uh, over lunch, um, and it also has, you know, I mentioned one book you may want to go read. So, where we're going today is uh, one of the basics of the Christian faith, and one of our beliefs is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, we're encountering this particular belief as we're working through, we've been um, in for several weeks now, quite a while actually, uh, 1 Thessalonians, and so um, I want you to hang with me. It's a little longer passage this morning, but it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse 16, and I'm going to go all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church. It's a good church in many ways. He commends them, but it's a church that's being persecuted, a church that's hurting in some ways, a church that has some problems. Um, some have embraced the doctrine of the return of Jesus Christ in an unhealthy way, and they have uh, decided, well, I'll just be lazy and hang out, and he's going to come back, and... and um, other people here in the church can feed me and take care of me. And, and so he, he uh, has to deal with some of those kinds of things in this particular book and in 2 Thessalonians as well. So here we go, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through, through the end of um, chapter 5, verse 11. For the Lord himself, and that's referring to Jesus, will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Always watch for repetition. See if you see this again. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them. Now the destruction is on those who are unbelievers, those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Suddenly as, labors, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they, speaking of unbelievers again, will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, and the children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, and asleep in this context means like moral indifference, carelessness about spiritual things, um, you're not paying attention, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, 
but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another. See, it's the second time we see this. Encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Now, when I look at this particular passage, I want to use the acrostic hope to help us get a handle on it as a lens through which to look at this passage. There's a lot here. I'm not going to be able to unpack it all in the time we have. Uh, but I want us to, to look at this particular passage in the context of hope, having that confident expectation in God. Years ago, I read a story. Um, it was 1989 in Armenia. Um, there was an earthquake that in four minutes managed to flatten the nation in many ways, killed about 30,000 people in four minutes, this particular earthquake. Moments after the deadly quake ended, this father uh, quickly, as quickly as he possibly could, got to his son's elementary school. And he got there and found to his heartbreak that the school had collapsed, the building had collapsed. And he, you know, and as other parents arrived, um, they began to sob and, you know, that their kids were dead. And, and this father um, remembered a promise he had made to his son. And he had told his son that he would always be there for him no matter what. And so he, he just wasn't going to give up. And so he went to the part of the building that was as close as he could get to his son's classroom, and he began to dig. And he began to pull off uh, boulders and, and parts of the building and bricks and everything he possibly could. And he just worked and worked and worked. And it was six hours and then eight hours, and then um, it ended up being 24 hours, and then it got to all the way to 38 hours straight. I mean, other parents came to him and said, it's hopeless, they're dead. Uh, police officers came to him and said, give up, it's, it's done, there's no way. And then after 38 hours of digging in this pile of rubble, he called his son's name, Armand, Armand and a voice answered him, Dad, it's me. And the boy added these precious words. He said, I told the other kids not to worry. I told them if you were alive, you'd save me. And when you save me, they'd be saved too. Because you promised, no matter what, I'll always be there for you. Jesus has made us an incredible promise. He has not abandoned us. He will return. And so the first part of hope, as we look at this passage, is that the H is for help is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. Robert Peterson once said, the desert of tribulation is a transitory crossing, not a terminal location. Whatever has got you down, whatever is hurting you, oppressing you, um, whatever is frightening you, it is transitory. It is something you're crossing. It is not a permanent location. And to the persecuted people of Thessalonica, these believers this was an incredible promise that Jesus would return. If you look at our passage again, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. I mean, this is incredible. And then there's this, uh, you know, Jesus will return. C.S. Lewis talks about this, and he said, it's the author of history, like the producer of a play, will step onto the stage, bringing down the curtain. And so someday... We will just be going through life. Maybe you're driving in your car, and all of a sudden you hear 
you know, a trumpet blast and maybe a choir. And it's like you look up and the heavens are, the sky is just rent open and there are just this angelic host. And then there's Jesus Christ. And you look and, you know, the baseball team over here is stopped and looking. And then you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you find yourself up in the air with him, joining this triumphal army. It's going to be an incredible thing someday. Jesus is coming back. You know, it's interesting when you look at this particular passage, it mentions the trumpet. And in the Old Testament, when they wanted to gather the people of God to meet with God, when they were traveling in the wilderness, they would blow a trumpet. And so this is, this is a gathering of God's people. And so we will see Jesus. He will come back. And so we can walk through life even when it feels like we're being defeated, even when it feels like there's no hope, and understand that help is coming. You know, if we could jump in a little time machine and, and go back to the time of World War II and land in France somewhere and meet those who were part of the underground, those who were fighting against the Nazis who at that time had control of the nation of France, if we could chat with them, we would be like, you know, we'd look around and we'd see this ragtag group of people who are fighting this sophisticated machine, the Nazis, who had really total control of France at that point. And we might have a conversation with them and we'd be like, you don't stand a chance against these forces of tyranny. What, what are you doing? What are you thinking? But I think they might respond in this way. They might say, you don't understand. While we struggle against these forces of evil that dominate our nation... There is a huge invasion force that's being assembled across the English Channel. We don't know the day or the hour when that signal will be given, but that army, that armada is coming, and we will join with them and experience victory. And that's how the Christian should feel. That's how we should think when we live in a world where maybe it feels like we're outnumbered. Now, I do want to hit pause here. And talk about when, because I run into this where people put out charts or they do a video or they, you know, and they'll, they'll like, okay, here's when it's going to happen. Um, I won't say his name, but we had a guy who came to this church for a couple of years. And I don't know what it was about September, but every September he would get ramped up and he had the date. He knew the date Jesus was coming back and he would get upset with me because I wasn't telling everybody because his, his big plan was to get a generator and get MREs. And I'm like, what in the world? Get ready just means live a holy life. Be, you know, be salt and light in your community. And, you know, at the end of every September, it was a little embarrassing and sheepish. And he's eventually moved. But understand, when anybody tries to tell you they know when Christ is coming back, they don't. There's a long history of people doing charts and guessing, and they don't know. And even Jesus, when he was on the earth, remember in Philippians, we're told that he emptied himself of the prerogatives of deity. And part of that was that Jesus only needed to know what he needed to know. And he actually says, there's an interaction where he says, I don't know when I'm coming back. As soon as he returned to heaven, he downloaded all the divine knowledge again. But at that moment, even Jesus did not know. You can go look it up. It's in there. And so understand, when someone tries to ramp you up and give you a date, 
It is foolishness. Don't believe it. And so, um, and the reality is, I mean, this is what I used to say to this guy. He, he, you know, it's September, whatever. He can tell me the date. And I say, the very fact that you have picked that date and you know when he's coming back, it says it's like a thief in the night. He's not coming back that day. Not going to happen because you know. And so we, we need to understand that when God holds in his hand, we don't know that part of it. But the beauty of the return of Christ is it's not a puzzle to be solved. It is a day to be anticipated. It is a joy to be savored that help is coming. The O in hope is for offer. What does Christ's return offer to us? And there's quite a bit here. I can only just kind of hit the highlights real quickly. The first is life or resurrection. He offers us resurrection. Now, I don't know, occasionally I will read the biography of a famous person or somebody I think is interesting. Some people love to read biographies. Let me give you a little uh, secret, you know, a, a little spoiler on biographies. The end is always the same. The person dies, right? And understand that in Christ, that's not the end. That death is not the final word. He is not the final enemy, that death is a doorway to a different kind of life. If we die before Christ returns, our soul, our spirit, goes to be immediately with the Lord. But when He returns, we receive the wholeness of salvation. Not just our spirit is with God, but we receive a new resurrection body. Many people today have body issues. You know, I struggle with my weight. People have different things. They think, you know, I wish I looked different or whatever it is. Or maybe illness is part of your life or chronic pain. But understand, you're going to get a resurrection body. You're going to be completely and wholly redeemed body and spirit. This is an incredible promise that comes with the return of Jesus Christ. Notice in our text, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, at the end of it, and the dead in Christ will rise first. If you want just a little glimpse of the dead rising, I can't help but think of in the gospel accounts where Jesus stands outside of the grave of Lazarus, his good friend, who he intentionally did not show up in time to heal him before he died. And he shows up and he tells him to roll away the stone and in the King James, because I grew up in the King James, I, I love you know, the, the line where it says, well, you know, should we really do that? The body stinketh. I always thought stinketh was funny as a kid. I don't know why. And he rolls that stone out, and Jesus, with the authority of being the very Son of God, cries out and says, Lazarus, come forth. And I want you to understand that if he hadn't said Lazarus, if he hadn't been specific, we are talking about God the Son, the one who has the authority to call forth all of the dead. And on the final day, there will be this great joining of spirit and body, and all will be made whole who are in Christ. This is part of our hope. This is part of what we look for. This is part of the offer that's made to us in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, after that, we also have um, the fact that it's not just that we have resurrection, that we have life, but we have a life with God, that we get to be with Him. Now, we have that to an extent here, but we are talking in the fullness. 
I kind of compare it to, you know, we have our first grandchild, I think she's about six months old, Wren, and we've gone to see her a couple times, and we are very grateful for FaceTime, and so our son and his wife will call, and we will watch as she learns to crawl and all this, and, and she even reacts to our voices a little bit, at least I think, I think she does, um, and I think she's starting to know us, you know, um, the, the funny people on the phone or whatever, and, but that's one level But what if we lived right there? What if we shared a home? That's a whole different level. And so whatever intimacy we have with God here, as beautiful as that can be, it's not the same as what we get someday in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17 it says, And so we will be with the Lord forever. We'll be with Him. We'll be together with him. We'll have this incredible relationship with him. And, and so it also says in 1 Thessalonians 5.10, it talks about um, he died for us so that whether we are asleep or awake, awake or asleep, we may live together with him. We will live with God. Revelation talks about we'll see his face. This picture of intimacy. And so this is a powerful call to joy for us. Some of the images of the kingdom of God I I really appreciate, like the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a party. We're being invited to this incredible party, to this gathering. In the story of the prodigal son, when when the son comes home, what does the father, who represents God, in that parable do? He throws a party for his son. And so when we look to the new heavens and the new earth, when we look to our eternal state with God, we get to experience this incredible joy as part of the offer. So we get resurrection, we get life, um, and we get this intimacy with God. We get to live with Him. We also get the full hope of salvation. The full hope of salvation. When you look at, at salvation, there are really three parts to it. The theologians talk about salvation from the past, which is being saved from the guilt and penalty of our sins. There's salvation in the present in the sense of we're being saved from and pollution of sin. We can, we can live a different life. We don't have to walk in that bondage that we once did. And then there's the future that will be saved from the very presence of sin. Won't that be incredible to be very, saved from the very presence of sin? Even as Christians... We, we are just dealing constantly with a culture and even our own bad choices where sin just still kind of can permeate. Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's the business that we work with. Maybe it's those around us. I mean, stop and think about what have you done? What have I done because of sin recently? Have you complained? Have you worried? Have you grumbled? Were you selfish when you should have shared? Did you ignore someone when you should have stepped in and helped? The presence of sin, it leads to the abuse of children and the ignoring of the elderly. It does all kinds of things in our culture, in our families, in our lives. And so, but we see that Christ coming back offers us the fullness of salvation, removes us from the very presence of sin. I was reading an interesting story this week. George Tullock um, had this kind of determination. He was fascinated by uh, the story of the Titanic that sank back in 1912. 
And in 1996, he led an expedition to go and, and retrieve what he could from the, um, the site of this ship, this incredible ship that sunk. And so he went and they gathered jewels and all kinds of different things from the ship. It was, it's, I guess it's like two and a half miles below the surface of the Atlantic. It's, it's a pretty big deal. And then he found that one big piece of the hull had broken off weighed about 20 tons, and he thought, that would be incredible to bring that back. And they, they worked and with ropes and all these things and chains and tried to do it and tried to bring it up, and then a storm hit just as they got it to the top of the ocean, to the surface, and it broke some of the ropes that they were using, and they ended up um, losing it. It went back down into the Atlantic. And George Tulloch did something kind of interesting. In his little submarine that he was using, he went down... And he put a little metal kind of message on the whole of that, that piece that he wanted. And he wrote, I will come back and put his name. Now, to me, that's, that's kind of funny because, I mean, it's like two and a half miles down in, in the water in the Atlantic. Is this going to be a real problem? Is somebody else going to snatch this before he gets back? And a couple years later, he was able to put together another expedition and come back and actually retrieve it bring it to the surface, according to the source that I read. And as I was reading about this, um, this was in a book by Max Lucado, and he talks about, you know, we kind of wonder why, you know, it's just a broken piece of metal. It's, it could be trash, you know. Why would he spend such a great price, so much time, so much effort to go and do this and Lucato asked this, he said, you know, you could ask the same about you and me. Why would God go to such efforts to reclaim us? What good are we to him? We're rebels. We're broken. We have defied him, rebelled against him. We have done all these things. But thousands of years ago, a couple thousand years ago, he sent his son to die on a cross. He paid the ultimate price for us. And offered us this salvation, this change, this what was broken can become blessed, what was in pieces can become whole. And the, the finality of that is the return of Jesus Christ. John, Max, um, John MacArthur once said, heaven is the perfect place for people made perfect. Through the grace of God, through the salvation, the fullness of salvation, we experience what's called glorification and we are made perfect. Imagine what you'll be like in heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, where all those flaws are taken out, where you are the very best possible you and your friends and your neighbors. It's incredible. The P in hope is this. It's for punishment. And you're like, what? That's, that doesn't sound very positive. Well, actually stop and think about it. You know, our decisions, it has been said, are the hinges on which our destiny hangs. And we live in this broken, evil, wicked world in many, many ways. Notice what it says in our text, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3 and 9. Verse 3 talks about while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them. This is talking about unbelievers. Suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and then unbelievers, you know, or they, will not escape. 
For God did not appoint them to, to us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who reject the holiness and the righteousness and the commands of God, which that's all of us, if we reject that and we stay in that place of rebellion and we do not accept the redemption that's offered us, the grace that's offered us, the unmerited favor, the blessing of what Jesus offers through his cross and his resurrection, then what we get is punishment. We get what we deserve. We stand before a holy God and we answer for everything that we have done. And so those who reject the message of Jesus Christ will suffer wrath. A good God must punish evil. Now, most of us prefer the quick, you know, and it, and it happens and, and you see it, and, you know, like the Old Testament story of Esther and Esther and the Jews, they're in exile. And there's this guy, you know, her uncle named Mordecai, and he refuses to bow to this wicked leader named Haman. And Haman goes, he doesn't just want to punish Mordecai, he wants to commit Jewish, uh, genocide against the Jewish nation, wants to massacre all of them. And at the end of the story of Esther, Haman, this man, had built a gallows like in his front yard, and he ends up being hung on his own gallows. And there's something in us that's like, yes, <laughs> you know, the evil got what was coming. But in this life, in this world, so often we see that the child molester got away with it, that the murder didn't get caught, that the mass shooter took out a bunch of people and then took out himself. Understand that part of our hope is that evil will be dealt with. That God will right the wrongs. That God will step in. That people will answer for their lives. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, this is an Old Testament picture of this idea that there's going to be punishment, eternal punishment. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, that's if you put your trust in Christ, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, sometimes people struggle with the wrath of God. They struggle with this. And I think a great question is, can you trust and love the God who would die for you? And I think we can. Can we trust that God is fair, that He is just? And so, understand that part of our hope is that God will settle all the accounts. That God will punish what is evil. You can see it in history where, where God reaches a point and then He exercises His wrath. Whether it's the flood of the, of the book of Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, the holy war that he ordered against the inhabitants of, of Canaan, uh, whether it's in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira that he strikes dead. But understand that God is going to deal with evil. I was reading a source, um, he was a, a researcher, David Barrett, uh, Barrett, who says he puts the number of Christians martyred since the time of Jesus at 70 million. 70 million? I mean, I don't know, but he supposedly researched this. 70 million Christian martyrs, they're going to answer for that, those who did that. The estimates of Christians who are killed annually for their faith as martyrs, um, uh, Todd Johnson of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity puts that number at about 100,000 people around the world. We live in a very free country, a protected country, at least for now. And so we see throughout the Bible this ongoing battle of good versus evil. God will 
exercise justice. And that will come out in punishment for some. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When His righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each, pers- each person according to what they have done. And so we need to understand this. Now, um, over and over again in the Bible, it talks about this day of the Lord where God's going to settle accounts. And where Christ is going to come back, and they merge together. Now, in the Old Testament, there are some days of the Lord that are days of judgment for particular nations, but there is this final day of the Lord, and that's pointing to the judgment and the return of Jesus Christ. You see the defeat of the evil, holy, the unholy trinity in the book of Revelation of Satan, and um, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. The beast of the sea represents powers and powerful governments that are anti-God. The beast of the earth is evil philosophies and false religions that fight against God. And God will deal with this unholy trinity. God's people will be treated different. That leads us to the E in hope. And I don't have time to develop it, but just to say this, E is for encouragement. Twice in our text, notice in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, it says, encourage one another with these words. And at the end of our passage, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, encourage one another and build each other up. The fact that Jesus Christ will return, that is something we can encourage each other with. When you feel outnumbered, when you feel like your life is going nowhere, when you feel like you are just uh, really struggling, God is for you, and He is sending Jesus Christ back. Understand that the second coming of Jesus Christ is not a puzzle to be solved. It's, solved. It's, it's a day to look forward to. It's a person to long for. Just like a little kid, you know, if a dad leaves on a business trip or a mom leaves on a business trip for a week or two, a little kid, when that When that person comes back, when they return, that little child is excited. And that's how we are to be when we think about Jesus Christ returning. So the big idea is this. Jesus Christ is coming soon. And the question is, are you ready? So let me pray and I'll turn it over to the worship team for a final song. Dear God, I thank you for this time together. We thank you that we can look for and long for this day of joy and judgment, but for us who have received, who have accepted your unmerited favor, your generous grace, Lord, we thank you. It is a day of joy. It is a day we can look forward to. We thank you that help is coming, that there's this offer of life and resurrection, and that we get to know you in an intimate way. We thank you that, that there is punishment coming, that us to be encouraged by the return of Jesus Christ, that someday we will see him, someday we will meet him in the air, and everything will be resolved, and we will experience the new heavens and the new earth and a place without the presence and the brokenness and the pain of sin and death. We look forward to this. We long for this. And I pray for your blessing on each person here in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.